Uh, hi, this is Don Marrero. Yes, you're listening to PF's Tape Recorder. Listen up, kids. Hello there, I'm PF. This is my tape recorder. Coming up, comedian Hal Sparks. Acting, singing, stand-up, being an architect, doesn't matter. The third year of it sucks. It's terrible. It's it's where things are no longer novel, and the things that you have to learn are more difficult and more complicated. And that's the least fun year, you know, and you're learning all this stuff. And that's when most people give up. We'll hear more from Hal in just a bit. We have a song of the week from Twin Atlantic from Scotland. But as always, we start with a dumb bit. Time for another installment of... It's Facebook, not Factbook. Okay, so uh, I was looking around on Facebook, of course, and a weird thing has been going on lately where um, we have this new breed of uh, progressives that hate the Clintons. And I know we have problems with the Clintons, but people on the left really hating the Clintons, more so than anybody on the right ever hating you know, any of their politicians, which is just very strange. Most of them, I guess, uh, disgruntled Bernie supporters. And believe me, I was totally in the tank for Bernie, but you know, what are you going to do, folks? I mean, they, they've got us by the, uh, by the cookies. So anyway, you heard about the lady, um, uh, Ms. Heather Bresch. She is the CEO of the Mylan uh, company. They're a huge pharmaceutical firm. They're the ones that jacked up the price of the EpiPens, if you're, if you're familiar with those. And um, so there's this meme pops up uh, in my news feed from uh, an old buddy of mine, who, uh, and it says, I'm Heather Dresch. By the way, they spelled her name wrong. CEO of the company that makes EpiPens. I raised the price from 5 bucks to over $300. And oh, yeah, I'm also a huge Clinton Foundation donor. You're welcome, America. And then below that is posted a thing saying she also gave herself a 300% raise. Uh, the latter part of that is absolutely true. She had, she got, or it was a 600% raise, uh, just recently. True. Uh, the meme misspells her name. Uh, and she is not actually a huge Clinton Foundation donor, but Mylan is. Now, yes, she is the CEO, but that kind of has to go through, I think, a board of directors. Now, before you get too far into this thing, uh, this lady is a piece of work, one. And Mylan, another piece of work, too, because I was reading in the L.A. Times that they uh, also are a huge tax dodger. They are one of these companies that moves a lot of their stuff around so it's like in foreign countries and then they don't have to pay any taxes on it and they write losses off in other countries and all that, all that kind of nonsense. So a lot more reasons to hate uh, Mylan uh, than, than just the uh, jacking up of the, of the EpiPens, which is, which is hideous. Now, back to the supporting the Clinton Foundation, uh, immediately after this thing, uh, blew up. Let me see if I can bring this up here. Uh, that uh, Hillary Clinton released on her website a statement condemning Mylan uh, harshly for doing this. And and weirdly, uh, Mylan was a company that a couple of years ago helped the Clinton Foundation get affordable HIV medication for folks around the world. So th- this is very strange. But it says, um, yeah, the statement right here uh, condemns the, uh, the whole thing about the raising the price of the EpiPens and Mylan. So here's the thing. And if you go to, at first I didn't think that they were a donator because if you go to the Clinton Foundation website, you can look up who's donating. And I went through the list and I went through it too quickly. They are in the 100000 to $250,000 range. So they are donators, that is that is for sure. But the thing is, is when you look at something like the Clinton Foundation, I mean, Bill and Melinda Gates are donate to it. And I know the question is, well, if people are donating to this thing, the question, of course, is are they getting some kind of special access or will they want special access uh, if Mrs. Clinton becomes uh, president of the United States? 
And that's a fair question. We can, and we can have a talk about that. I think it's something that we, we can legitimately be discussed. But first of all, don't get your news from memes. Uh, spell people's names right. And, you know, let's get all the facts in order before we have the conversation. And then that would be terrific. You know, this is at least, I think, more of an issue, certainly, than this uh, thing about the Clintons killing everybody that gets in their way or, or, or any of that kind of nonsense. So just remember, kids. It's Facebook, not Factbook. This episode of PF's Tape Recorder is brought to you by Home Shirts Cleveland. For all of your Northeast Ohio vintage t-shirt needs, visit homeshirts.com forward slash Cleveland. You'll also find links to the original Cincy Shirts site, as well as Home Shirts Indianapolis, with more cities to come. That's homeshirts.com forward slash Cleveland. And this just in, go to any of our Home Shirts websites, use the code COMEHOME, all one word, and receive 20% off for a limited time. Now, on with the show. Hal Sparks is a stand-up comedian, actor, and TV presenter who was born in Cincinnati but grew up in Kentucky and then uh, moved to Chicago to start his showbiz career, as it turned out. Now, uh, this interview, I missed the first few minutes of it because I was using a recorder from work, and you're supposed to hit record twice. Uh, the only thing you missed is we just talking about Cincinnati and Kentucky and Louisville and things like that, and then we pick up the story where he moved to Chicago, and that's where things really get moving. So here now is our interview with Hal Sparks. Sense. And you, you did a lot of stuff in Chicago. Yeah, well, I, I went to Second City, and um, I mean, the curious thing about Chicago is, is that if you're interested in the arts at all, is that there's very little magic around it. It's not, you know, this L.A. myth that you go someplace and you're discovered because you're awesome. It's much more mechanical. It's much more blue-collar in its approach to the arts, and that you start unskilled and you work your way up the ladder as you become more skilled. And so, you know, I, uh, when I lived in Kentucky, I thought stand-up was magic. I had no idea that people did that for a living or how that would even work. Like, how do you become a stand-up, you know, when you're, uh, you know, 11 years old and it's 1981? What does that even mean, you know, when you're living in Kentucky? In Chicago, you know, when I got up there when I was 14, I, I realized, oh, you do this, you start as an opener, you build up enough material where you can do a 20-minute feature act, and then you work your way up to headlining. Okay, I can do that. That's just normal business ladder stuff. You know, it, it put a, you know, a real mechanic to it that I could, you know, wrap my head around. So I just decided that's what I was going to do at 15. Essentially, once, once I started, you know, actually developing the skill, I just said, no, okay, this is my career. That's it. And Second City, I did quotes, you know, like, at the same time, I was doing stand-up at 15. I was doing Second City. I was doing the Teen Troop. So what was, and, and, yeah. So what was your first uh, interest in being in entertainment? Was it 
watching stand-up comedy as a kid? Was it just watching TV and or what was how was how did that develop? We didn't have a TV. We didn't have a TV in Kentucky. We um, when we lived in Pittsburgh, we did not have a television. So I listened to comedy records and and music records and and in some ways old radio. I would listen to um, like uh, the public radio station would play you know on on the Friday through Sunday nights. They would play like Shadow and uh, Shadow and Night Beat and uh, Suspense and the Jack Benny Show and, and you know George Burns and uh, you know, George and Gracie and it, those kind of things. And I would listen to them, and that was pretty much my upbringing as far as that. Went. And, you know, my my neighbor had a TV, and we would go here and watch. At, you know, it would be a destination to go there one night a week and watch something. You know, usually I think it was Buck Rogers when I was a kid. But, um, but I would listen to comedy records. That was what got me interested in, and I would quote them to my friends. Wow. But yeah, I, I and I would go to the movies a lot since we didn't have a TV, and you know, it was, you know, it was basically daycare. My mom knew the theater owner at Brighton Park Mall, and I, you know, during the summer, essentially, would drop me off there in the afternoon, and I would watch the same movie six times. You know, oh wow, so she got off work, huh. and. Uh, and play at the arcade, and that was that was pretty much it. And then when I went to Chicago, all theater, all film, all television production, commercials, voiceover, everything is available there um, right. on, a, on a primary scale. And so I just dove straight in. Um, I think I had a I had an epiphany that you know when I was a kid, you was do what you want to be, and I I wanted to be Indiana Jones, and then I wanted to be Han Solo, and then I had a realization that there's there's one guy who gets to be both of those. So I decided I wanted to be Harrison Ford. <laughs> you know, I, I'm like, that that would be the thing. If you're him, you can play all those things. You right. can have all that part. You uh, can experience all those things. I see. And that was my 11-year-old and 12-year-old logic, that that would be the cool thing to be. Hmm. So when did you decide to focus on comedy? Um, well, I guess I was I was really good at it. Um, at a young age, I was good at imitating other comedians and, and reciting both comedy movies and albums. And then my own observations, you know, it's a little bit like being a farmer. You're, when you're a farmer, you're not initially a farmer. You follow your dad around or whoever is the lead farmer on that field. And they teach you all of those bits and you learn by imitating their actions. You don't necessarily understand you don't have a feel for the land. You don't have a feel for the crops. They grow. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they do. You don't really feel why. You're just repeating actions. But then after a while, you start developing, you know what? Maybe we should, if we planted about six feet this way, the crop might be better this year. Because you've done it long enough, you've started to get a feel for it. And that's really what happens with almost anything if, you, if you're dedicated to it. And I think talent is really just falling in love with something before anybody else does. Yeah. Um, cause I don't, I don't believe in talent is magic. Um, I believe in, you know, a developed, uh, love for something, which is really what talent is. Cause I think most of the time, no matter what you want to do, acting, singing, stand up, being an architect, doesn't matter. The third year of it sucks. Huh. It's terrible. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's where things are no longer novel. And the things that you have to learn are more difficult and more complicated. And that's the least fun year in the, in the learning arc and stuff. And that's when most people give up. 
But if you're young when you fall in love with something and you start working on it, oftentimes that third year doesn't bother you because at that age, everything sucks. So you don't blame it on the arts. You don't blame it on learning. You know, people give up after three years of, you know, two and a half years of the piano because it gets really hard at that point. Or, or martial arts, there's plenty of yellow belts running around. So uh, the reason yeah. kids tend to do it is because life kind of sucks from a lot of different angles at that age. So you don't go stupid piano. You use the piano as the place where you can actually track your own personal growth and you feel better about yourself. And I, and I think with comedy that, you know, I recognize I have some unique, creative, you know, comedic thoughts of my own. And that differed from some of the stuff that I was listening to. I think it was the act of being a contrarian that did it. Uh-huh. Where you go, I don't necessarily agree with all this. And so if I disagree, how do I present my disagreement in a way that's palatable? And that's what comedy is. It's, it's a genteel disagreement. So your comedy kind of formulated on doing things a little differently than what you'd grown up listening to? Because I know a lot of you know bands are because they think you know they like music, but they don't necessarily like exactly the way it's being done by some people, even though they may like those artists. And then they try to do a, a little twist on it. Was, you, was that more of a direction as, a, as yeah. opposed to like maybe mimicking some of your heroes? Uh, yeah, I think in the beginning that's uh, as a as there's a difference though with stand up and with music is that. Even if you, you know, whatever your influences are, you can stick to a specific genre. You can stay a blues band forever. And there's no problem with, you know, overlap of point of view or any of that stuff. So there's the stand up. If you're a stand up, you have to be you, you know, right out of the gate as soon as you're done. You can see, you can see an influence sneak through other stuff. But it's not like you're going to be a blues comedian or a, <laughs> a rock there's no thematic zone you can stay in that your heroes are in you know so I'm curious and if anything my yeah my 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 difference would be like all the 80s metal bands I like that grew up listening to blues and hard rock but came out with something that was totally different and a little bit more cheery yeah yeah that's true um I'm curious since you know you kind of became a uh, a, a pop culture sort of commentator on the 70s and 80s and so forth when when did you finally permanently have a TV? And did you have to kind of go backwards through the culture to see stuff? Or had you seen stuff, you know, going along at friends' houses and stuff and that you were still familiar with, the, you know? With the- yeah, and those, if you notice, um, I, I, my commentary on the, especially the 70s part of it is largely music and film. You know, if, yeah. if I'm not aware of something or I'm not connected to it somewhere, um, I won't go anywhere near it. There are obviously a couple of television shows I would watch at night best friend's house. Um, and I remember very uh, distinctly when my friend Sean, um, who's he was the rich kid we all know because his parents owned a holiday inn, I think, in town. Oh, wow. With, you know, eight whole rooms or something. He, uh, they had HBO before we went. They were the first people that had cable that I, that I knew personally. And so we would go and have pizza parties at Sean's house and watch HBO. Um, and that was a big deal. You know, so I... My my attachment when I talk about it, and I love the seventies and I love the eighties to certain television stuff, is either from those experiences or after I moved to Chicago um, when I was fourteen. Then we had a TV in the house, um, but you know, I I probably still wasn't as attached to it as my my friends were at the time because I grew up kind of without it, right. so I didn't watch it as consistently. Um, but I would watch stuff that 
everybody else was talking about, I would kind of, because I was new there, I was making plans, all that, I would just kind of try to be in the loop. Okay. So I would, you know, and, and my dad and I would often watch uh, TV together, watching comedy uh, and, and the like. Um, and it ended up another, you know, occasionally. Uh, there would just be stuff that was specific to my sense of humor, like uh, I think the public television station in in Chicago played uh, Monty Python um, on Sunday nights. They played uh, Monty Python and, and Black Adder and, um, you know, and that kind of thing. And I, I, that definitely had an impact on my comedic sensibilities as well, what I thought you were allowed to do comedically. It opened up the doors, yeah. uh, you know, visually. So you hosted a game show in Chicago, did stand-up, did Second City, all that. And so mm-hmm. did, did you, at, I guess at a very young age, you, like you were saying, you probably felt that as you had, you, you know, uh, exa- um, exhausted the Kentucky experience, did you quickly exhaust the <clears throat> Chicago experience? Or did you just think, oh, I'm an adult now, I should probably, you know, move to California and, and try to pursue this in as a job? Yeah, it was more like, uh, you know, if you want to be in the steel industry at a certain time, you flew to Pittsburgh. You, you know, it's just, you, you had a, a choice of two towns if you want to elevate into the true professional town. Um, I had, when I was in Chicago, I had known of people who were second city main stage or who had, you know, done, you know, comedy in the Chicago area who were local stars in many ways who stuck around when they're, and the rest of their class of Second City or what have you, like OTK in LA or New York, who effectively got left behind because of it. Yeah. Were now either hired by their friends who had done the move, or was just, they were now, they were living in Chicago, you know, doing commercial voiceovers and that kind of stuff, which is fine. If that's your stick and you got a, you know, family at that point, and you're like, okay, this is, this, I'm going to have to build a bigger nest egg before I make the move or whatever. Um, totally cool. But, um, I had clearly had my sights set on moving to Los Angeles, um, probably from my uh, junior year in high school. Oh wow! And so, what happened yeah. when you arrived in LA? Did you did you start doing stand up? Did you were you going to auditions? Because you, you know you had a little uh, you had a little heat on you, I guess, from the success you had in Chicago. I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, I won the funniest teenager in Chicago contest. That got me some uh, stand up shows in LA, which got me ability to kind of work out while I was there. Um, I could still pay some bills by doing stand-up, which was something that not a lot of actors have as an option. Yeah. Um, a, lot of, a lot of the problem that actors run into when they go to L.A. is that they have no other recourse. You kind of just, because the job, you don't build your own acting jobs unless you're a filmmaker or a playwright. Also, you you you, know, you wait until not only does a job put along, but a job you're right for that works with you that you fit into as an ensemble. There's all kinds of there's ten factors that have nothing to do with your own personal talent that have to line up as well. So you have to understand that that wait's going to be a long time. Well, with a stand-up, you can make your own gigs. Same with being in a band or, or being a screenwriter. So um, I went out there. I kept working on stand-up and music. I um, interned with a screenwriting uh, teacher, John Truby, for two years um, so that I could... And then by the end of the 90s, I, I was ghostwriting scripts for, um, you know, some fairly decent-sized production companies. Oh, wow. Um, and I'll pay my bills as well. 
um, effectively acting as like script doctor for those kind of things. Okay. And then, yeah, yeah. Um, I had my I had my own sketch group. Um, was also doing stand up. I call the nineties the Sisyphus years because I would push the rock up the other and watch it roll back down every week. You know, there's <laughs> no track. Yeah. So every job I got was episodic. It would you get it, it would it was gone. There was no oh okay, well I played a doctor on the show and they're casting ER now. Like that never happened. Um uh. and it, it got to the point where I, you know, in the latter half of the nineties I auditioned for to every year for five years until I got it. I was from 1990, what, 1995, 96, to 1999 when I got it. I came back every year. Cool. And so when you showed up in Los Angeles, though, did you have like a master plan? Like, I'm going to do, I want to act, or did you say, well, I've got all these interests, I'll just see which one kind of sticks? Or with all the interest you had, I. Um, Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's. It's like keeping five balloons in the air and the you know, room at any one time. You, you spend your time kind of dashing back and forth, tapping them up to make sure they stay. Um, that's much more like what my career is about. It's some sort of like hyper-branded, you know, uh, I'm going to develop one area of primary and then stick to it as, because you have to. I've never bought into that. I've never been a fan of it. I've never found it to be true. And I found that it actually probably killed a small acting career and it salvages. Because people tend to go home because, you know, they have a, maybe a three or five year plan. When I came out there to do it, my feeling was, I'm going to be, you know, Burgess Meredith or Hume Cronin one day. I'm going to be 90 and acting. I'm going to be 100 and still doing stand up like George Burns. That's my goal. That was my master plan. And so I could be, um, like impatience um, day to day, but patient in the long term. You know, I could I could grind as if every day counted on it, but also not feel discouraged because I knew I got a long term goal in this. And if I'm 65 when I pop, who cares? Yeah. You know, and I've I've always that's kind of always been my drive because a lot of the people I loved growing up artistically were old, so. What, what, where's the shame in being Red Fox's age when you're, you know, when you break and have your sitcom or what have you? You know, where's the, why is that, uh, you know, somehow too late or whatever that, that I was, the age centric part of it never struck me because it, it wasn't part of, there's a wisdom and, and kind of a philosophical nature to stand up that I think is aided by a level of maturity over time. Um, and as a Carlin fan, as a, you know, as a fan of that kind of art, like, the idea is that you can just keep getting better. So I, you know, if you're developing a skill, again, it's that sort of Chicago work ethic around it that really helps. Is that I'm not the actor I can be, even when I'm great at what I'm doing. There's still something in the tank. There's still something to find there. There's still a new character I can't play yet, you know, partly because I'm not old enough, you know, that I don't know those characters yet. Um, and, and so looking forward to that, that's, that's the game plan. You just keep working instead of like latching onto it. If I don't make it when I'm young, then I won't make it. What oh, that, see, you know, yeah. That's absurd. Yeah, yeah. Because there's a lot of people that, um, like Connie Britton is an example. We just finished watching Friday Night Lights. She, her acting career didn't really take off until she was in her early 30s. Right. You know, and now she's you know the, right. she's the go-to uh, actress for you know the you know the the attractive you know um, 
you know, mom type, you know, uh, role and, and things like that. So, um, was it difficult to yeah. con- concentrate on one effort over another, or as they came up, you were able to focus on you know whatever was asked of you? Well, the the reality is is that the the nature of the arts is is a hurry up and wait um, and seek opportunity kind of thing. It's it's half hustle, half uh, you know, hang out by the phone and. That, that's a lot of empty space to fill. And if you can fill it with becoming better at a, at a skill or an art form, it will serve you at some point, period. It all, it all, you know, entertainment, especially as, you know, as you're playing different characters and you're, um, writing different characters or you're writing songs about different people or experiences, every single one of them helps you. So you're not ever diminished by trying. And most people in life are trying and failing a lot. That's, that's a big portion of life, the frustration of it. And if you're able to, you know, keep experiencing that as a human being, um, then, then ultimately you get what other people are going through and that feeds the realism in the art that you're conveying. You're no longer, you're not in an ivory tower ever. Yeah. So you're uh, going to be headlining Brouhaha one of the nights here in Cincinnati. Uh, looking forward to getting back on stage. You, you get on stage as often as you'd like. I'd imagine with all your other uh, things you have going on, it's a bit more of a challenge. Um, no, it's, I'm in a pretty good cycle of stuff. Um, okay. I, you know, I'm in, and I have four dates uh, right after this. Um, and um, I just, you know, uh, week before last, uh, did a whole weekend. Uh, week before that, I did a single night show. Like it's, it's pretty consistent touring nowadays. Yeah. So I will feed that in and rotate it through with, you know, my band played, um, oh, that's right. uh, Monday night. And, and then, you know, I'll, I'll be on the road for a week essentially. And then I'll come back and then we have two gigs and then I go to stand up and, and, you know, most of the time bands, especially at our level, they have periods where they have some, it's got some stuff booked. They've been rehearsed in between, but pretty much that's it. So in between those book shows, I'm, I have other shows booked. I'm just constantly doing my thing. And, and you know, it's a, it's a great experience. Uh, the one thing I want, I just remembered that I had heard a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was listening to Jackie Cation's uh, podcast. Uh, she's a friend of the show, mm-hmm. and uh, she was mentioning. Mm-hmm. I think it, I think it's Setlist, and she was mentioning some of the people that are crazy good at it. And the name Hal Sparks came up, and I was like, I thought, yeah, because I, you know, I, I see you do stand. I thought, oh, you know, that that does make a lot of sense since you know of all the different talents you have. Uh, does it come that easy to you, or is it still kind of hard to do that? Because for folks that don't know, very quickly, Setlist. I guess you go up, you're given topics you've never seen before, and you're supposed to do jokes on them like you've been doing them for years right is that essentially the yeah but it's not just topics it's not just like hey do a bit about cars do a bit okay. about whatever they, right, they're right. very specifically themed and a lot of times they're they're uh they're pretty edgy titles like they'll give you something like holocaust co or or uh, uh okay. you know some weird collaboration because the idea is is that stand-ups we have a tendency a lot of us to think of a joke grab a scrap of paper, like one word or two words on it, and put it in our pocket, and then go, I'll remember that when I'm home later, I'll write yeah, it yeah. down. And then we forget, and you end up with these stupid scraps of paper in your pocket that have nonsense on them, you know, like, uh, you know, um, trying your shoestring budget, that kind of stuff. You know, like, you know, they, they're just odd thoughts. But what they do is they put six of them up there, and you don't see them until you're up there. 
and you see them one at a time while you're up there. So you do one, and then when your bit's kind of rounded out, they'll pop the next one up. And so you've never seen that one either. It's a, it's really fun. Um, I, uh, I'm embarrassingly good at it. It's really comfortable for me. I enjoy it. Um, I, I find it challenging, certainly, but exciting more than worrisome. I see people, some people I've done the show with are literally sweating right before they go up there. Um, that. <laughs> to, to the point of nausea. Um, there's some stand-ups that are, are really, they enjoy it. It's, it's a little bit like, you can kind of tell if people are comfortable with crowd work, they'll be comfortable to some degree with that, with set list. If they don't do crowd work or they have a very distinct, uh, you know, POV that's very, you know, linear, they'll have a real problem. Hmm. Um, and yeah, so I, I happen to love it. Um, I will do an hour of, of improv stand up at a place called Flappers in LA. Um, about okay. every two months, I go up and I do a set without any preparation at all. I don't allow myself to write. I don't even anymore. I don't even allow myself to think about a topic before I walk on stage. Wow. That it has to be just whatever comes to mind. Um, and it, you know, it might be the, you know, at a certain point, you play guitar long enough, you want to go play jazz because it's, it, you know, it explores a place you don't normally go and it's outside your safety zone and you have to react and interact. And so I think it might be that I'm entering that phase in my comedic life, you know, that, that I, that I like that. I, I'm so good at the tightrope and now it's time to, you know, put a, put a bed of spikes under it. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Well, I'm glad things are going good for you. Well, look forward to seeing you in Cincinnati at the Brouhaha and then continuous success with, uh, all the TV shows and the band and the comedy and everything. Indeed. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I look forward to seeing you. And, um, although my show is not normally, uh, geared towards kids at all, if you want to, uh, bring your daughter down before the show or, or, or after say hi, get a picture. I'm more oh. than happy to do it. Okay. Maybe I can swing that. I'm supposed to actually work at another event on the other side. What, what night are you? Were you Friday or Saturday? I'm Saturday night. Saturday night. Yeah. Saturday, Saturday night. Rats. Um, I'll see if I can get something sorted, though. Yeah. I'll, I'll let you know. So yeah, we'll great. figure it out. Okay, awesome. Perfect. All right, thanks, Al. Uh, sure. Cheers. Right. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Hal Sparks for being on the show. Uh, I have no dates for Hal Sparks. Uh, if you go to his Facebook page or you go to his website, halsparks.com, he should be updating them very soon, though. But uh, as you are hearing this, he has already done this headlining gig at the Brouhaha Comedy Festival in Cincinnati, but I'm sure he'll have more dates to come, especially if you're in the Los Angeles area. Look for him and uh, check out Setlist and see if he's performing there. Uh, he comes highly recommended by friend of the show, Jackie Cation, as well as others. Uh, PF Tape Recorder logo designed by Dan Coble, original music composed and performed by John Baropoulos and Doug O'Connor, with a little help from me. And we're going to go to the song of the week then. Uh, Twint Atlantic are from Scotland. Saw them a couple of years ago on the Warp Tour, oddly enough. They turned up on there. And uh, they were on one of the very small stages. Only about 50 people watching them knew who they were. Uh, they are off Scotland. They sound very Scottish. Uh, their current single is No Sleep. Their new album, I think, is called Gala or Gone. It's, it's coming out soon. I can't remember the title. But the single is No Sleep. It is our song of the week on PF State Recorder. So long and thanks for listening. Are you happy yet? How do you measure if you're over it or not? I got that coffee grip 
seasons of breathing 